0: Happy Easter everyone. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. Special welcome to our guests today. I know that uh, many of you are guests and we're thrilled that you're here with us. And if you are a guest and you ask me what this church is all about, I could sum it up in one word, Jesus. Jesus the Christ. We're a church that's seeking to be all about Jesus, learning about Jesus, being rescued by Jesus, loving and following Jesus, worshiping Jesus, treasuring Jesus, letting Jesus rule our lives as King. spreading the word about Jesus. We believe here at New Life that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, that he's the glorious Savior, the living Lord, worthy of our deepest devotion, trust, love, and obedience. That's what we're all about, and uh, we thank God for Jesus. There's a little study guide inside your worship folder, and we like to provide those every weekend here so you can kind of track with uh, what the speaker is talking about. So you can reach in there and pull that out right now, and today I'd like to talk with you about building your life on a rock-solid foundation, and that's something I imagine all of us would want for ourselves and for our children and for the people that we love. And to do that, I need you to get in your mind an image of a rock, a huge, massive rock. And for me, my mind goes back to where I grew up on the West Coast. And just up Highway 101, a few miles from my hometown, was another little city called Moro Bay. And the outstanding feature on the landscape there was Moro Rock. And there's a picture of it. So when I think about a big, huge, massive rock, that's the image that comes into into my mind. And I remember my buddies and I once deciding we were going to go climb that thing. And when we got right up to the edge, we thought, that's not happening. It's just just not happening. And so when we uh, were unable to transport that rock here for the purposes of a sermon illustration today, we decided on a miniature version. So here it is. And this one I can scale. Ah. This is an interesting perspective. <laughs> I can see the light shining off of the top of some of your heads, that's... And of course, it'd be the same for me if I was sitting where you're sitting. Well, think about rocks for a, a moment. Rocks have certain qualities that make for good metaphors. Remember the Chevy commercial a few years ago, like a rock, so strong, durable, reliable, that's the idea. Or maybe you hear about someone who has um, endured a particularly difficult circumstance, and you might say, well, she's a rock, or he's a rock. Immovable, firm, solid. You might know that in the Bible, rock-like qualities are often ascribed to God, the maker of all things. For example, Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His ways are perfect, all his ways are just, A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The psalmist uh, wrote things like this, For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, exalted be the God of my salvation. The Lord has become my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. Rock-like qualities are often ascribed to God the Father, and also to his Son, Jesus Christ, Like in that classic Larry Norman song from back in the 70s Jesus is the rock that doesn't roll. Uh, It's a song, really. Look it up on YouTube if you don't believe me. In the New Testament, thankfully, Jesus is often referred to as a rock. He's called the living stone, he's called the spiritual rock, which is interesting. He's said to be the stone that the builders rejected, that God made the chief cornerstone of his church. He's referred to as the rock of our salvation, but interestingly, he's also called the stumbling stone and the rock of offense, and we'll probably understand that a little bit better by the time we're done here today. There are other rock references to Jesus also. Jesus once said that if people like us didn't praise him, that the rocks would cry out in worship, and of course, the the Easter story that we're celebrating today reminds us that his tomb was carved out of a rock And after his body was laid inside, it was sealed with a a stone. And so lots of rock references to Jesus in the New Testament. But where I want us to see this theme today is in one of Jesus' teachings, the one often called the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps his most famous teaching. And we're actually going to be exploring that sermon over the course of the next several weeks, as Angie mentioned earlier. And I would say this, even if you're not a regular churchgoer, even if you're not you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, I urge you to come back and join us for that. You know, many who don't read the Bible much would still be familiar with some phrases from the Sermon on the Mount, like, blessed are the meek, judge not, turn the other cheek, the golden rule. All of that found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you have a Bible or or a device, go to Matthew chapter 5. That's where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And Matthew opens by kind of giving us the setting for this sermon. It says this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. You know, when Jesus of Nazareth taught, people wanted to hear what he had to say. Lots of people. Jesus was an intriguing figure. He didn't sound like the typical teachers of, of that day. Plus, he could do miracles. That was an added plus. And so crowds were forever following him around, hoping he'd do something spectacular or say something profound. So it says that he saw the crowds, and he went up on a mountainside. And the crowd started to gather in. And then his disciples, it says, came up close to him. And everyone was leaning in, knowing that Jesus was going to be speaking that he would have something important to say. And then it says what? He sat down. So I'm going to do that carefully here. And uh, in those days, sitting was the typical posture for a teacher. And I think that's a custom that ought to be reinstated, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) And so Jesus sat down, perhaps on a rock like this, and with everybody gathered in close and the crowd leaning in, straining to hear what he was going to say, he started his sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We call that what? The Beatitudes. That's how the Sermon on the Mount begins. And over the course of the next 15 or 20 minutes, Jesus delivered what many people consider to be the most Famous sermon given in all of human history. And then, when he was getting ready to close his sermon, his message, he told a story. And it's a story about a rock as well. And uh, I'm going to read it for you. It goes like this Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when he said that, maybe Jesus looked down the coastline there and found a big rock, like Morro rock, and pointed at that, or maybe the rock that he was sitting on. He said this, The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man Who built his house on sand. The rain came down. The streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell over with a great crash. And that's how he ended the sermon. Right there. And the response was this. It says when Jesus had finished saying these things. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority. And not as the teachers of the law. And so when Jesus taught, when he preached, when he delivered messages, people were kind of stunned by him. He was an intriguing man. The, the things that came out of his mouth had a certain weightiness to them, and they had the ring of truth, and they would, the people would look at each other and say, wow, we haven't really heard teaching like that before. And they were amazed at his teaching. So this story about a man building his house on the rock is kind of intriguing too, isn't it? I mean, when I hear that story, it raises some questions in my mind, and maybe in your mind as well. Like, what does it mean? What does that story mean? And what exactly is that rock-solid foundation that Jesus told people to build their lives on? And what does the storm represent? And lots of questions. I've been mulling this story over for several weeks now and studying all the great theologians and scholars, see how they interpreted it. And One conclusion I've come to is this, to really understand this story of the two home builders, and to have a shot at answering our questions correctly, we first need to understand the purpose of the whole sermon. Why Jesus gave this sermon in the first place, and what he was trying to get across. And here's my understanding of that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' main goal was to paint a very sharp contrast between two kinds of religion, two ways of approaching God. In fact, if you read through the entire sermon, you you will discover that there are lots of twos in there, lots of pairs. Two masters, two gates, two roads, two destinations, two crowds, two kinds of teachers, two kinds of trees, two kinds of fruit, two kinds of people wanting entrance into heaven. And then in this last story, two builders, two houses, two foundations, and two very different outcomes after the storm hit. The reason Jesus paired things up like that was to draw a very clear distinction between two ways of approaching God that are very different, two polar opposite plans for coming to God, obtaining his favor, being accepted by him, and being granted entrance into his kingdom. One of those plans, one of them was and is very popular. It's embraced by the vast majority of people then and now. The other plan is more obscure and it's embraced by relatively few, even today. And What I want to do is give each of these two plans a name just to help us distinguish them in our minds, okay? I'm gonna call one the performance plan and the other the grace plan. The performance plan and the grace plan. And I believe that every single human being is on one of these two plans, including everybody in this room here today. There is no third plan, as will become clear in just a moment. John MacArthur says this, There are only two religions in the world. One involves our work, our effort, our righteousness, our goodness, and the other states that we have nothing to bring to the table, that God must act and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. One is the performance plan and the other is the grace plan. So just to help us get clear, let me talk for a few moments about the performance plan. You say, what are you you talking about? What is it? Well, this is the view that human beings like us can behave in certain ways that will ingratiate ourselves with God and make him happy with us. We can perform well for God, that's the idea. This is the religion of human achievement, that's the blank there. The performance plan is the the religion of human achievement, of earning God's favor by our attempts at goodness. This is the concept of the ascent of man, climbing the ladder to reach up and grab a hold of God. People who are on this plan, the performance plan, believe that they can work hard and do good things and, and that that counts for their salvation to one degree or another. They likely think that it works like this. Well, I do some good stuff, and then God does some good stuff, and me and God will cooperate together to get me to heaven. Salvation then, in their minds, is a, a shared venture where God and I work together to make me a good enough person to be accepted by God And end up in the good place. Maybe I contribute 10% and he does 90. Or maybe it's a 50-50 kind of deal, whatever. But this approach says that we can at least do some good things that please God and merit his favor. That's the performance plan. That's the religion of human achievement. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Okay. You need to understand that this is the prevailing view of humanity. Always has been. You'll find this everywhere, including every world religion except Christianity and even some brands of religion that claim to be Christianity embrace the performance plan. So that's one plan. The second plan I'm calling the grace plan. Now, grace is just a a nice word, isn't it? We have all sons, and we didn't have any daughters, but if we, if we had a daughter, Grace would have been a contender for her name. We just couldn't see naming one of our sons Grace. That's like, no, that's, that's not going to work very well. The Grace plan, th- this plan, listen now, declares that humans contribute nothing to their salvation. Nothing. Nothing. The grace plan is the religion, not of human achievement, but of divine accomplishment. This is not the concept of human ascent up to God, but God's descent down to man. See the difference? The rescue of mankind from an impossible predicament that we could not get out of ourselves. This approach... The grace approach declares that human beings can do nothing to gain God's acceptance on our own, that their only hope of avoiding the righteous judgment of a holy God lies in God's grace, his kindness. This approach now, listen, declares that sinful human beings could never be good enough to earn God's acceptance, to approach God, to be accepted by him, People on the grace plan have learned that God's law is too holy, too high, too pure for anyone to clear that bar. No human being tainted by Adam's sin could ever hope to get close to that. We all fall far short. People on the grace plan understand that. And the grace plan declares that since no human has enough goodness by his own efforts to merit God's acceptance, that God himself must provide that goodness through another means without any help from us. See why there's so few people on the grace plan? It takes a lot of humility to accept it. The grace plan states clearly that God did just that. What God demanded, he delivered. That's the grace plan. And so really, these are the only two options. Either humans contribute something to earn acceptance with God and a a place in heaven, or they have nothing to contribute. Either we can do something to help our cause with God and get a place in the kingdom of God, or we can't. Now, the Bible has a name for the grace plan. Do you know what it is? Good news. Good news. Or gospel, that's what the word gospel means, good news. It's good news because it tells us that God took it upon himself to solve our biggest problem that we could not solve by ourselves. Now listen, nobody refers to the performance plan as good news, because it's not. If the performance plan was the only plan available, that would be devastating news for humanity. I'm telling you, people who are on the grace plan are just happier. I mean, they're just happier people because they realize that for them, being on the grace plan, the pressure is off to try to earn God's favor. They're just happier people. They know that someone else performed for them, and God accepts them because of him. And they are eternally grateful for that. So much so that they want to love and serve and obey and worship and give their lives to God because of his glorious grace plan in their lives. The performance plan, the grace plan. See the difference? It's so, you've got to get this, it's so important that you understand these two plans because everybody's on one or the other. Now, let me say a few things I hope will clarify some things for you before we get back to the story about the guy on the rock, okay? We're getting there. Kind of like this. Maybe you have some question marks in your mind after I, hearing what I just said. Let me say a few things. One, in our world, human performance is rightly celebrated. In our culture, in our world, it's, it's a good thing to celebrate human performance, right? There's nothing wrong with that. We should, we should cheer when a fellow human being performs well, earns a diploma, gets a good performance review at work, and earns a raise. We should cheer when someone scores a touchdown, or drills a game-winning three-pointer, and we probably should mourn when our team has less than stellar performance. I mean, that's in our culture. We should all be happy when we hear of somebody completing a difficult project or earning an award. Those are good things worthy of celebration in our world. The problem is when we bring that performance mindset into our relationship with God. When we think, well, God should be pretty impressed with how good I've been. Surely God sees I'm doing the best I can under the circumstances. I mean, I'm not a serial killer or a rapist I don't sell drugs to children for crying out loud and I'm a lot better than my co-worker in the next cubicle over who's cheating on his wife I love my wife I pay my taxes I go to church I even put a little bit of something in the offering for crying out loud surely God grades based on effort right I mean it would not be fair of God to hold me to a standard so high that I could never meet it if I do my best to help others live by the golden rule, try to stop cussing so much, cut down on my drinking, surely God will be happy with me and let me into heaven. That is a performance plan mindset and Jesus said it's deadly in our relationship with God. So we can celebrate it in our culture, in our world, but we don't bring that into our relationship with God. Second, You can't mix these two plans and form some kind of a hybrid that sets better with you. If you add a little dash of your performance to God's grace, then that contaminates grace, according to the Bible. Grace is no longer grace. And if you try to mingle in a little grace with the high demands of God's holy law, Then you corrupt the law by lowering his standards to in an attempt to make him easier to obey. Come on, God, I've only lusted like three times this week. Give me a break. God does not permit the mixing of law and grace. Grace is not really grace if it includes some of our efforts. It's one plan or the other. And then the third thing I want to say is don't make the mistake of misreading the Sermon on the Mount. Some people like to read Jesus' sermon here in a way that makes it seem like Jesus was actually advocating the performance plan. That's one more reason why you need to come back these next several weeks and walk through it with us so you don't inadvertently misread and misunderstand Jesus' words. Some people read the commands that he gives and they say, see there? Jesus is telling us, love our neighbors, be meek, turn the other cheek, stop being angry and anxious, keep the golden rule, be nice, help needy people, pray, be tolerant of others, and if we all do our best and try real hard to do these things, then he'll open up the door to the kingdom of heaven for us and we'll all party in the clouds forever. The problem with reading the Sermon on the Mount that way is that you have to skip over certain passages of it, like Matthew 5, verse 20, where he said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven, Now I'm telling you, those dudes were more religious than anybody sitting in this room, and what about this verse, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect, therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. Do you know what Jesus was saying? Listen, if you are on the performance plan, if that's your plan, if the religion of human achievement is your religion of choice, then the standard that you must meet in order to be accepted by God is sinless perfection. Perfect obedience to every command of God for your entire life. So you see, If someone truly wants to be on the performance plan, the standard is immeasurably high. No one, no one can meet up to it. That's Jesus' point. Listen, Jesus' purpose in preaching the Sermon on the Mount was to expose the performance plan for what it is, a dismal failure, woefully inadequate, corrupted by human pride, and eternally damning. His intent was to create a growing disenchantment with that plan for those who were on it, which was most of his audience that day. Now, the good news of the other plan, the grace grace plan, that was not fully uh, revealed at this point. Jesus only hints at the grace plan in this sermon. He had not yet died for the sins of the world, had he? He had not yet risen From the tomb for our salvation—that was all still to come. So in this sermon, Jesus is seeking to create dissatisfaction and disenchantment with the performance plan for those who are on it, so they'd be open to another plan. Kind of like Direct TV is always doing, trying to create dissatisfaction with your current cable service. Right? It's like it's horrible channel or you know whatever it is i mean they're trying to stir up discontentment with the current plan that you're on that's what jesus was doing stirring up discontentment with the performance plan for those who were on it now with all that as a backdrop let's think again about the story of the two home builders and the questions we have about what that story meant Jesus spent maybe 20 minutes dismantling the performance plan in the minds of his listeners. And then he says this, look, if you hear my words and put them into practice, you will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And when that Category 5 storm rolled, rolled in, his house was not demolished. Instead, it withstood the storm and the fury of it, and it stood strong because it was built on a rock. But if you only hear my words and don't act on them, you'll be like the foolish man who built his house right on the sandy beach, beach beachfront property. And he didn't drill down into the bedrock and pour deep caissons and footers so that he'd be building on a solid platform. He just built right there on the sand. And when that same storm rolled in and blasted his house, he said it collapsed with a huge crash, and it was swept away, and we still have in our minds the images from Sandy, right, and the the devastation of the homes that were swept away, so we can envision this quite easily. In my mind, the key to interpreting this story is the storm. What is the storm, Jesus? What does the storm represent? Why did you use that image? What are you trying to get across? What's the storm? Twelve years ago here in this church, I taught on this story and I told our people then that the storm in the story represents the trials and difficulties of life that come and beat against our lives, like sickness, or losing a loved one, or a financial crunch, or losing your job, or having a rebellious child. I taught our people that the storm referred to hardships and difficulties and challenging circumstances. But I now believe that that is a secondary application, not the primary meaning. Now that I understand what the purpose of the whole sermon was, I realize that I need to look at the context, what surrounds this story for clues as to what Jesus meant by the storm, and there are clues. And those clues present us with an image of a storm that's far worse than any difficulty anyone will experience in this life. Look at the three teachings that precede this one. Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus' words, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to what? Destruction. Mark that word. And many enter through it but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Verse 18. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So first you have destruction, now you have fire. And then verse 22. Many will say to me on that day. What day? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. What day? On that day. Judgment day. The day of destruction. The day that bad trees get thrown into the fire. The day when phony Christian imposters will be banished from the presence of God. See, I've now come to believe that the primary storm that Jesus was referring to in his story about the man in the rock is the storm of God's coming judgment, a storm like no other that will sweep millions of people away because their life was not built on a rock-solid foundation. So with that understanding, now the meaning and application of this story gets clearer, doesn't it? If the storm is indeed a picture of God's coming judgment upon humanity, which the Bible, by the way, talks about a lot, like in Hebrews 9.27 where it says, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. It's all over the scriptures. If that's the storm, then the point of the story is that some people will be prepared for that storm and will weather it and other people won't. I mean, isn't that the point of the story? Those people who prepared well did so by building their lives on the foundation of hearing the words of Jesus and acting on them. And those people are called what? Wise. And those who end up unprepared for that day of judgment are in that condition because they only heard his words but failed to act on them, and they are called foolish. Foolish. So, big question. How can we, human beings, act on the words of Jesus so as to be fully prepared for that day? What's involved in building your life on a rock-solid foundation that will survive the storm of the judgment of God? Well, thankfully, Jesus already summarized it for us in this sermon. The words he wants people to not just hear but act on are the words he just spoke. Let me summarize it in three statements, okay? Number one Get on the right road. Get on the right road. Verse 13 again. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate, and so narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Get on the right road say, what's the narrow road? Well, it's obvious what the narrow road is. It's the road of trusting in divine accomplishment rather than human achievement. It's the grace plan instead of the performance plan. Those people who are trusting in their own good deeds to earn favor with God and entrance into his kingdom, they're on the broad road. By the way, There's a sign at the entrance to the broad road. You know what it says? Heaven. That's what it says. Heaven. And so people are on the broad road. They go through this broad gate. There's lots of folks around. It's like, this is great. Everybody looks happy. The curbs are way out there. And we're cruising down the broad road. And everybody's looking like they're having a good time. They think they're on their way to heaven. said Heaven there's a bend in the road. And Jesus said, broad road leads to destruction. You need to switch roads. Ever been on the wrong road? Trying to get somewhere, and you took the wrong road. Maybe you're following the little GPS thing, and it's taking you all, you know, you're following the little blue dot, and it's like, I'm supposed to be over here. That's a bad feeling, isn't it? To be on the uh, the wrong road. But that bad feeling has no comparison with the bad feeling that many will experience one day when they are told you were on the wrong road. Switch roads, switch roads. Listen, the truth is you and I can contribute nothing to our salvation, nothing. God did it all. Choose the narrow road, the less populated road the pathway of grace. Get on the right road. That will be your rock solid foundation on the day of judgment. Second, listen to the right people. Get on the right road, but listen to the right people. You can turn on your television set any time of the day and a lot at night, and your television screen will be filled with the huge face of some guy confidently telling people what they need to do to get God to bless them. And most of it, I'm telling you, is performance plan stuff. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They look innocent, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by by their fruit, you will recognize them or know them. (laughs) Beware, Jesus said, of people directing you onto the broad road. Teachers, preachers... Men of the cloth influencing you in such a way that you're following them. Yeah, you're following them. They're the blind leading the blind. You're following them right into the pit, and that's a pit you don't want to be in. Listen to the right people. Get on the right road. Then lastly, acquire the right understanding. The right understanding. You see, people who are on the performance plan often think, I'm good with God. I mean, he's good with me, I'm good with him. God and I, yeah, we're like this. We're tight, me and God. But Jesus warned his listeners about that. One of the most haunting statements in all the Bible, Jesus spoke about those who on judgment day will be surprised to discover they were on the wrong road when they had been so confident that they were on the road to heaven. Maybe they had listened to those false prophets. Maybe they'd been influenced by them. It led them to having a false sense of security. But here's what Jesus said in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, judgment day, Lord, Lord. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Man, that sounds like those guys on TV, doesn't it? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That is a frightening scenario, is it not? Describes self-deceived, phony Christians who aren't really Christians at all because their hope of salvation had been in all the good things that they'd done and the spectacular things they'd been able to do. They chose the performance plan thinking it was God's plan. But they will be rocked to their core on judgment day to find out they were wrong. And they will be dismissed from the presence of a holy God. And Jesus will stun them with his words, I never knew you. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know their name. Jesus knows everybody's name. he's saying is we weren't in relationship together we weren't connected in a vital union relationship with each other because that only happens for those who are on the grace plan it's only those on the grace plan who are in a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ the performance plan may make you look religious may make you feel superior to other people who aren't doing as well as you're doing may feed your ego may earn you some respect from other people but it will not open up a relationship with God. He chooses to truly know only those who have rejected the performance plan, canceled their subscription to that, and fully, wholeheartedly embraced his grace plan. Those are the ones he knows. And so that's the way to build your life on a solid foundation that will withstand the storm. That's the plan that will enable you to survive God's judgment and be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The grace plan, the narrow road, the rock-solid foundation. You know, I read a... I realize this is a heavy sermon on Easter, isn't it? Were you expecting, like, light fluffiness? (laughs) I read a a quote this week from D.A. Carson, and he said this, Whatever the church does... It should prepare people to face death and meet God. I think he's right. I'm trying to be a faithful spiritual shepherd today and tell you what it's going to take for you to be ready on that day to where you're standing on the rock of your salvation and the storm of God's judgment comes and blows and many are swept away. But when it's all said and done, you're standing firm because you're standing on the rock, the rock of your salvation, Jesus Christ, and all of your hope was in his grace, not in your own efforts. You say, well, don't Christians do good things? Well, sure they do, but not to earn God's favor. They do it because they have God's favor in Jesus Christ, and they're grateful and it's out of a heart of love and desire and passion that they say, Jesus, I will serve you the rest of my life. Not because I have to, not as an obligation or duty, but because I want to. It's the heart. It comes out of a transformed heart. And so this Easter weekend, the question I'm asking all of us to mull over for a minute is this. Which plan are you on? There's only two. Two. Are you on the performance plan, the religion of human achievement? Are you, are you still trying to earn your way into God's favor, earn a spot in heaven? Try your best, do, do your best. Or have you rejected that and you've embraced the grace plan and said, God, it's got to be you. I accept what you've done for me. The grace plan, remember, what God demanded, he delivered. That's the grace plan which plan are you on can you locate yourself on one or the other because you're there's no like neutral like I haven't really there's not two ways two paths two roads two destinies two foundations for your eternal future nothing could be more important and so on the back side of your study outline there I put a couple statements at the end and I'm wondering if you would identify yourself the first one says I need to understand more about this grace plan and maybe that's maybe maybe this is like the first time you've heard any of this and it's new and and you're thinking I think there's more there and there is and if that's you today one thing I would encourage you to do is drop by um, in our lobby out here there's a rack full of these and it says the gospel very good news for a very fallen race from a very gracious creator and you can just have one of these and, and, and walk through it on your own or with a friend, and it'll explain the grace plan in more detail, the good news of the gospel. There's another statement there that says, maybe you're here, I'm ready to switch plans today. Through his word, Jesus is showing me that I've been trying to be good enough for God, and now I see clearly that I could never be good enough for God. I want to switch plans and get on the grace plan today. And if, if that's you today, I want to close out my sermon with just a few thoughts for you. So please listen carefully. Several years after Jesus preached this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, those who were staunch advocates of people being on the performance plan became so enraged with Jesus and his message of grace that they concocted a plan to do away with him, to be rid of him. And you know they carried it out. What they didn't know is that they were simply fulfilling and facilitating God's plan of grace whereby all of our sin and all of our law-breaking and all of our self-righteousness would be punished in an innocent substitute. Jesus, the perfect son, the only one to ever completely fulfill God's law his whole life, him died at the hands of men, yes, but also at the hands of God the Father. The Bible says it was the will of God to crush Him. Why? Because it was part of the plan, the grace plan. Jesus received our punishment. He served your sentence. He took what you deserve for your many sins, as He did for me. He purchased love that word. He purchased our forgiveness, our salvation, our redemption at the cost of his own blood. Amen? That's what Good Friday is all about. Three days later, he rose from the grave to prove he was indeed the one he had claimed to be. The Bible says he laid down his life and then he took it back up again. Not just anyone can do that. <laughs> You've got to have life in you to do that. He is declared, the Bible says, to be the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. That's why millions of Christians all around the globe today celebrate Easter as Resurrection Day. He rose from the grave. And after he did, he commissioned his disciples to take his message of the good news of grace to the ends of the earth. And because they did, we're here today. Today, the risen Lord, the rock of our salvation, offers a gift The gift of his perfect record of complete obedience to God. His sinless perfection. As a status, he offers that as a gift to all who will reject the performance plan and embrace his grace plan by faith. I'm telling you, it's a better plan. It's a better plan. You can stay on the performance plan if you'd like. It's not going to end well grace plan is a better plan it's the narrow road that leads to life few there be that find it that worries me a little bit few but you can be one of the few you can be one of the few i urge you right now if you never have to confess jesus christ as your savior and your lord your living lord believe that he died to take the punishment for your many sins. Believe that he loved you enough. Maybe you needed to be in church this Easter Sunday so that a pastor in a peach colored shirt could look you in the eye and say, Jesus loves you and you and you and you and you and you. He loved you enough to take, to absorb in himself the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins. That's love, my friends. That's big time. Godlike love. Believe that he died in your place, was judged in your place. Believe that he rose from the grave. He's alive today. He rules as king in the hearts of his people. And ask him to have mercy on you, a sinner. That's the sinner's prayer, by the way, that's in the Bible. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Have mercy on me, a sinner. It's humbling, isn't it? That's why there's so few on the narrow road and so many on the broad road. Because to be saved, you have to be humble. Receive it by faith. Confess it with your lips. Discover what it's like to have rock-solid confidence that when you stand before God one day, he will not say, depart from me, but he will say, welcome home. Come on in. Enter into the joy of your Lord with all your fellow brothers and sisters who are on the narrow road. The worship team is gonna come back on up and in just a moment, they're gonna sing these words. It's a different melody, but the words may ring familiar to you and they are so applicable for today. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. Christ is the solid rock. Let's bow our heads together this morning. My question for you is, is that your rock solid hope today? Is it the hope that you have for your loved ones? I felt compelled this Easter weekend to ask those of you who are Christians, who have friends and loved ones and family members that you're concerned for, because you're not sure they're on the narrow road you're not sure that they've built their lives on the solid rock you're concerned for them And if that's you today would you slip your hand up yeah I'm, there's someone in my life I'm concerned about I'm not sure they know Christ many many of us and I'm going to ask you Christian to come during this time of response and kneel and pray come and pray and ask God to reach your loved one before it's too late come now Come on, pray for them. Say, God, send somebody into their life. Send them, send them somebody. Send them to church. God, work. Bring them the message of the grace plan and soften their hearts so they'll receive it before it's too late. Maybe you're here and you're a new grace plan person right now, this morning. You check that box. I'm switching plans today. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you sense that faith arising in your heart today and you're embracing the grace plan and rejecting the performance plan, I want to encourage you to confess that. We have prayer partners on either side of me. Over here on my right, there are three or four, and over here on my left, three or four. And you can just walk up to them and say, I'm confessing Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord today. And they'll say a short prayer with you and just rejoice in that with you. Man, that would be great, wouldn't it? On Easter Sunday. Whoever God is speaking to you, respond this morning in these next few moments.